0: Welcome to the JMD Podcast, a podcast series from the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Like the Journal, this podcast aims to improve the management and understanding of inherited metabolic disorders by allowing authors to share their work in a slightly different way. I'm James Nurse, the Journal's social media editor, and I invite you to join me every fortnight as I learn from scientists, clinicians, researchers, and parents about the fascinating world of inherited metabolic disease. This episode is all about pyridoxin dependent epilepsy. Hello. In today's episode, we're discussing a paper accepted in November 2020, Consensus Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Pyridox-Independent Epilepsy Due to Alpha-Amino-Adipic semi Dehydrogenase Deficiency. One of the challenges of managing rare disease is to deliver consistent high-quality care backed up by robust evidence. This means that when we publish guidelines, they're always well-received, and this paper was no exception. It's an honor to be joined by three of the authors, Dr. Curtis Cochlin, Professor Peter Clayton, and Dr. Emma Footit. Hello, Emma, Peter, and Curtis. Hi,
1: hello. It's a pleasure to join you.
0: Thank you all for joining me, and welcome back, Peter, for your second podcast. I hope this means the first one wasn't too terrible. Now, your work here relates to paradox-independent epilepsy, but that's rather a broad term. Uh, could we begin by asking uh, for an explanation of what exactly that means and how it relates to the specific focus of these recommendations?
2: Well, if I kick off, I think it's easiest to understand if we look at it historically. So, in 1954. Hunt et al. described a family in which the second-born infant started having seizures four hours after birth and died at 30 hours of therapy-resistant epilepsy. The mother went on to have a third-born infant who started to have seizures three hours after birth, and these seizures stopped when he was given an injection containing six milligrams of pyridoxine, and then the seizures returned when the pyridoxine supplement was stopped. For the remainder of the 20th century, peroxine dependent epilepsy remained a clinical diagnosis based on cessation of seizures after administration of 50 to 100 milligrams of pyridoxine, continuing seizure control on around 15 milligrams per kilogram per day of pyridoxine, and recurrence of fits when the peroxine was stopped. Classically, these patients had onset of fits in the first few days of life, although cases with later onset were described. And although the seizure disorder was well controlled by peroxyn, most children had some learning difficulties. In 2000, the gene for the most common form of peroxyn-dependent epilepsy was mapped to uh, 5q31. By Cormier daire et al. And in the same year, Barbara Plechko reported a raised concentration of pipicolic acid in the CSF of affected children. This suggested that there may be a gene at 5Q31 that was involved in pipicolic acid metabolism when mutated, caused paradox independent epilepsy. In 2006, we were able to show that it was a gene known at that time as antiquitin, but now usually as ALDH7A1, which coded for an enzyme called alpha-aminotypic semialdehyde dehydrogenase. The catabolism of pipicolic acid and of the amino acid lysine depends on this enzyme. If the enzyme is inactive, there is buildup of alpha-aminotypic semialdehyde, or AASA, and its equilibrium partner, Delta-1-pyridine-6-carboxylate or P6C. P6C can react with and inactivate the catalytically active form of vitamin B6, pyridoxal 5-phosphate. So, understanding the metabolic defect has allowed us to develop additional treatments to try and prevent the learning difficulties, and that's what this paper is all about. We now know that there are other causes of pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy, other genes that might be involved, but this uh, paper is specifically about ALDH7A1 deficiency. So I'm going to hand over uh, to my colleagues who are more active in the current treatment to tell us more about this.
0: Before you try to think away, Peter, why did Hunt decide to give pyridoxine?
2: It was, the uh, child was unwell, uh, receiving intravenous fluids. They thought the child should have a vitamin supplement, and the one they chose to give by injection happened to contain a rather generous amount of pyridoxine. So it was just a clever interpretation of an empirical observation. This is
0: described as a consensus paper, and it seems we live in a world where we struggle to get anyone
1: to agree on anything at all. How have you managed it? Uh, I'm happy to to jump in here. I, I want to say that we had a lot of things going for us. Very importantly, that this is not the first time that a group of experts have gotten together. There was a, a great review article, but also uh, recommendations for the treatment and diagnosis of these patients led by Sylvia Stockler that was published in 2011. And I believe Professor Clayton was part of that group. And there was an update to that, those recommendations and that were published in 2014 that I was a part of that came shortly after the first patients were treated with a lysine-restricted diet. So we weren't starting from scratch. I think that really helped. And this is a group of people who've worked together before. And so putting those things together, we had a head start on many other consensus guidelines. And I'd like to say that the co-authors were really wonderful people to work with. So we had a lot of things going for us.
0: And so obviously, you've got everyone together. How did you then start developing the 30 statements that you came up with?
1: It was started about two years ago. Clara van Karnabeek and I and uh, Lara Sang met to talk about updating the previous clinical recommendations. And at that time, we, we had a couple of goals. The first was that we really wanted to try to have a more systematic approach to the update, really follow consensus guidelines recommendations, which certainly mean a lot more work, but also having that systematic approach we thought would ensure that these guidelines were taken a little more seriously by our colleagues and and ourselves. Um, The three of us decided to do a true systematic review of the literature to try to find what we thought were key topics in the diagnosis and treatment of of PDE. And we did start with those previous recommendations that I mentioned, so we, we had a template to say, Are these recommendations still the ones that we should focus on? Are there new things in the literature that we should also focus on? And really the big difference between 2014 and today is that a lot of adjunct therapies have been in use. I mentioned that in 2014, the recommendations were updated after the first paper on a lysine restricted diet, but certainly there were a number of papers that also reported adjunct use of a lysine restricted diet as well as arginine supplementation as arginine competes for the transport of both lysine and ornithine at the gut, the entry into the mitochondria and the blood-brain barrier, and sort of a combination of both. So those were a lot of the new focuses of the statements. And another goal that we had is we really wanted to include as many experts in the field as possible to try to be inclusive as possible. And I, and we certainly didn't include everyone, but I'm really proud about the fact that we ended up with uh, individuals from 29 institutions and representing 16 countries. And so we sent the survey to everyone and got very good feedback from individuals. Um, We then did meet in person to discuss our disagreements I would say that there were certainly quite a few disagreements, which was both enjoyable to talk through the rationale and also made the guidelines a lot stronger. And then we sent out a, a second survey to our collaborators. And you'll see throughout the manuscript that there wasn't perfect agreement on everything, but there certainly was consensus.
0: So in the end, you agreed on 30 different statements about pde 7 a one disease. Uh, Peter's spoken briefly about how these cases might manifest but for the clinicians encountering these patients prior to diagnosis what tests should they be performing in general and what specific tests should be done for suspected PDE and and when
3: Yeah, I could address that question if you like, James. So, yes, I think as metabolic physicians, we get quite frequently asked actually about the management of neonatal seizures, maybe every week or so. And in particular, we're asked about children in whom seizures are resistant to conventional anticonvulsants. I mean, it's in that scenario that we're particularly alert, I think, to a possible inborn error of metabolism. And of course, if there's any relevant family history as well. Usually, these babies will be managed by neonatologists and neurologists in the first instance, and they will have guided the very initial investigations. As we know, there's many common causes of neonatal seizures. And inborn errors form really quite a small part of the differential diagnosis. But, of course, an important part because many of them are very treatable. So assuming sort of electrolyte imbalances, hyperglycemia have already been considered. From a metabolic point of view, quite early on, we would want to exclude hyperaminemia as a cause um, and also get a blood gas to exclude um, any acidosis. But I think when we're sort of thinking along the realms of resistant seizures, we'd be thinking more along a different sort of subset of inborn errors. I guess there's a handful of diagnoses that sort of come to mind in this group of infants in, in whom pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy is, is one of the differentials. So alongside that, you may also be thinking about disorders of militant cofactor deficiency, oxidase deficiency, non-ketotic hyperglycemia will present in the neonatal period, as well as biotinidase deficiency, some of the mitochondrial disorders as well. I'm not forgetting potentially disorders of intermediary metabolism. Although I have to say they don't usually present primarily with a seizure disorder. They're often encephalopathic at presentation as well. So thinking about the sort of diagnostic workup, I've already alluded to some of the sort of more urgent investigations that you might consider early on. But a little bit further down the line, you may also consider looking very specifically for these inborn errors. So thinking about pyridoxine dependent epilepsy due to aldh 7 a one deficiency, we would want to look for the, the urinary biomarker AASA. In some centers, they may also consider measuring pipicolic acid as well. We would also want to measure a urate because we know that lysum cofactor deficiency and sulfitoxidase. some of these patients can have um, a slightly elevated ASA as well. So it'd be important to exclude those with the plasma urate and also a urine sample for purine analysis as well. And then thinking about some of the other differentials I mentioned plasma amino acids paired with CSF amino acids, obviously a biotinidase to exclude biotinidase deficiency. And in all of these conditions, we would always want to follow up with genetic analysis. So a DNA sample as well would be uh, very important.
0: And to a certain extent, the delivery of treatment and the response to treatment is in itself a screening test, if anything, rather than a diagnostic test. But certainly once you start offering treatment and seeing a response, that might push you towards a diagnosis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think investigation and treatment really go hand in hand. Often at the sort of the stage that we're asked to, to come and give an opinion, and I think we would always suggest using pyridoxine really quite early on in, in the management of these patients. And absolutely, if you see a good response to that, then it will really hone your, your ongoing investigations.
2: But I'm wondering, at what point do you suggest that the infant should have a trial of therapy, given that, unfortunately, our lab and other labs don't give you a same-day answer for the UNAASA.
3: I think that's a good question, Peter, and, and it's something that we're often asked. And I have to say, we are usually approached by either neonatology teams or, or neurologists for an opinion on babies, usually several days into the onset of seizures when at least one, if not two, sort of standard anticonvulsants have been trialled and it's possibly not having an effect or certainly not as good an effect as the clinical teams would like. So really, at quite an early stage, I would recommend using pyridoxine. As we know, it is really without any significant side effects. So I would certainly recommend it at an early stage and hand-in-hand with with sending off the, the diagnostic investigations. I think the other important thing to mention is, if it's possible, the child should be on some kind of CFM monitoring or or EEG monitoring to help establish if there really is a response to pyridoxine. And we do know as well that there can be some sort of cardiovascular respiratory compromise. So um, these children who are often quite sick anyway should be in a setting whereby their cardiovascular respiratory systems can be supported if necessary.
0: So this is probably a good time to sort of segue into treatment. This is, after all, a treatable condition. And you have discussed treatment in terms of different age groups and emergency management as well. What are the key messages here? Um, and for those staff who might encounter these patients in emergencies, what what do they need to know?
3: Well, if you like, I can talk about the emergency management So in the first instance, we know with children with pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy, and I'm thinking about those in whom we already have a firm diagnosis, we know that febrile illness and any sort of intercurrent illness that can lead to catabolism may make them more vulnerable to seizures. And they often have breakthrough seizures during this time, despite being on on pyridoxine treatment. So during these sort of periods of illness, which may may term a sort of sick day management, um, we would always advise families to double their regular dose of pyridoxine and really at the onset of illness because that's when we tend to see um, the seizures breaking through. And I think in the guidelines, we've set up to a maximum of 60 milligrams per kilo per day um, for children. And in addition to that, because we know that um, in a catabolic state during illness, there'll be flux through this lysine catabolic pathway we want to try and reduce the amount of potentially neurotoxic metabolites that are accumulating so we would therefore suggest the use of an emergency regime which is essentially a glucose polymer that we're all quite familiar with using for for other inborn errors in metabolism to try and minimize the amount of catabolism essentially to provide another energy source during this time period and we would tend to say it would just be for the duration of the illness, um, which you'd expect to be sort of two to three days. You certainly wouldn't want a child remaining on this emergency regime for longer than that because it's not nutritionally complete. And in our centre here, we tend to ask families to make contact with us if their child is unwell and they're using the emergency regime. So we can sort of give some advice about perhaps how to restart diet as they begin to improve
0: And I wonder if someone would comment on more day-to-day management.
1: At the time of the consensus guidelines, there had been 12 publications that had reported patients with PDE, ALDH7A1, who've been treated with some form of lysine reduction therapy, meaning either a lysine-restricted diet, uh, just a a pure protein-restricted diet, which also reduces the lysine, or um, arginine supplementation or, or some combination of both but all of these papers uh, are certainly observational. None of them had a control group. We wanted to be very clear about the level of evidence that we have for these treatments in the guidelines, both um, to, for transparency' sake, but also to, to point out the, the needs for future research. As Professor Clayton gave us a great history of this disease and, and seizures really are very well treated, we've known for quite some time that patients have a poor developmental outcome, at least the majority do, somewhere between 70 and 75% of patients are reported to have gross motor, fine motor, and cognitive developmental delays. And so the prevailing hypothesis has been that the accumulating metabolites, we often say it's AASA, but it, certainly there are many other metabolites in that pathway that one might also think could be responsible for these developmental delays.
0: And the rationale behind lysine restriction is just trying to reduce sort of the upstream metabolite?
1: That is a great summary of what it is. Certainly we see that if we're measuring metabolites, let's just use AASA again as the proxy for that pathway, by restricting the substrate, restricting lysine into that pathway, you will see a reduction in that often. What I tend to see is a a reduction somewhere by a third to a half of those metabolites once you start uh, reducing the substrate.
3: And I think in my experience, that's certainly what we do see. The ASA, certainly in urine, does come down. But even though it's it's overall lower, it does fluctuate. So there's obviously other factors affecting this pathway.
1: We'd all love to have some biomarker like phenylalanine for PKU. And in that one, there's such a great association between lowered phenylalanine and and overall outcome. And that hasn't proven to be true in this disease. And in these observational studies, patients have had a mix of subjective developmental improvement based on parental report or clinician report and some objective developmental improvement uh, neuropsych testing. Because of the level of evidence and, and the fact that I think in, in our field, we don't think enough about the harm of our, our recommendations. and But um, putting a child on a lifelong lysine-restricted diet doesn't come... Without some downside, those diets are incredibly difficult and in some areas of the world are very hard to sustain or expensive. And so we decided to change these guidelines into sort of a risk benefit ratio where the younger you are, the more benefit we believe that these uh, adjuncts interventions may have. And so the recommendation to start them in a newborn who we have yet to see their developmental progress and hopefully can prevent some of the harm from the AASA elevations seem to have a higher consensus than those patients who, who were quite a bit older. And I, I would say this is one of the, the big changes to the guidelines based on that in-person group. Those first survey we sent to collaborators, they were not divided thusly. And uh, after talking in person, the group felt that recommendations for a newborn for these adjunct treatments really would be much stronger than for an adult.
3: I think it's maybe worth pointing out at this stage as well that there tends to be much better dietary compliance with the newborns because it's that much easier to introduce a a lysine or a protein-restricted diet in a young infant than it is to an older child where you can really run into lots of difficulties.
1: Yeah, that's such a great point, Emma. I, I think the same, I can hear my our metabolic dietitians speaking over my shoulder here, that it's also an important opportunity to introduce taste of a metabolic formula as a newborn to ensure that compliance and, and missing that window where they sort of introduced to this taste is really important.
0: Obviously, we've seen in PKU uh, history where we said diet wasn't for life, and there's been some backtracking on that now? Do you worry that by being more pragmatic at this early stage, you might get caught out and find yourself changing your advice in future?
1: I, I for one, hope that these guidelines and recommendations change over time, because I am hopeful that we will continue to develop more evidence about what the appropriate treatment is for patients. So certainly the PKU story is a lesson for all of us to not assume that we know what the treatment should be, how long it should be, for whom it should be. And I will not be upset personally if these guidelines change dramatically because of ongoing studies. At least that's what I'm hopeful for.
0: And I suppose that brings us on nicely to talking about whether there are any other limitations to your work or anything else that you wanted to add at this stage.
1: Something that we're all excited about is that this is not hopefully the last time this group of experts collaborate. And at the moment, there really is a focused paper on details about how to implement these dietary interventions led by our nutrition colleagues who do this every day. I think these guidelines are really led by two centers in the Netherlands and at Great Ormond Street, but those really will be the details that I think some of us missed in consensus guidelines, which you told us what to do, but you didn't tell us how to do it. So I, I'm looking forward to that paper as well. And I'd love to hear Emma's thoughts on that paper.
3: Well, I think it was really just to point out that I think, as you say, we're aware that maybe the consensus guidelines we've published don't have a huge amount of detail about how to deliver um, the lysine restricted diets, but that is coming.
1: I, I wanted to point back out at the limitations of the guidelines. Um, Sometimes I think one of the benefits of guidelines is to have people focus on similar treatments so that we really can evaluate which treatments are working and not working. You know, it's hard when everyone around the world is doing something differently to compare outcomes in patients. So hopefully these guidelines really will Set a framework for all of us who treat patients with PDE so that we can assess which of these recommendations truly do work and are really important to continue and which of these recommendations, you know, didn't seem to make a difference in the ultimate outcome of a patient and we need to address why. Thank you. I think it's really interesting to hear Curtis saying he
0: would like to see his guideline revised over time just to show that people are continuing to develop new evidence and deliver ongoing best care for their patients. Thank you all. I know it's been a bit of a, a tricky one to get you all together for this. If you're listening and you'd like to read the article, then go to the journal website and search for Pyridoxine Independent Epilepsy Guideline. And you can listen to more podcasts about metabolic medicine, including Professor Clayton's insights into why severe COVID infection could be related to an inborn error of metabolism by searching for JMD Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Peter, Emma and Curtis, thank you all for joining me today.
3: Thank you very much, James.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and, And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.